0: Let's talk about fan fiction and maybe we should define our terms what are we ta- what do we talk about when we're talking about fan fiction
1: well isn't that a thorny question
0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 15th year, number 774 Fan Fiction Finn. Back in August of 2021, Dr. Kavita Mudan Finn was my guest on The Shakespeareans, my video conversation series about Shakespeare in our lives and culture. We talked about fan fiction, the creation of it, the academic field, and fan fiction's value as a legitimate form of criticism. Dr. Finn's an independent scholar who has published widely on medieval and early modern literature, Shakespeare, and fan studies. She's taught literature, history, and gender studies at Georgetown University, George Washington University, the University of Maryland at College Park, Simmons University, and most recently, MIT. When not managing a two-child, three-dog circus, she's working on a biography of the 15th century queen Elizabeth Woodville and continuing to write fan fiction, as she's done since the age of five. We started our conversation with Kavita attempting to help me understand what the term fan fiction actually means.
1: it's a de- it's a term that people actually have very dr- have a lot of difficulty defining at least in part because what we think of as fan fiction nowadays is not necessarily the same thing as what fan fiction might have looked like 100 200 300 years ago
0: well that's um, exciting to me it's, that it's an older it's an older idea than i thought it was oh it's
1: very old it is In in its basic essence, fan fiction is as old as fiction. It is as old as the telling of stories. Because all it is, in its very purest sense, is taking a pre-existing story and transforming it in some way. And whether that is as simple as flipping the perspective, telling the story from a different point of view, taking the story and talking about what happened before, what happened after. You can even look at something like, for instance, Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad is a very specific period of time. It covers the period between the the period of the end of the Trojan War. You don't get the beginning of the Trojan War. You don't get what happened afterward. You get just this section. So fast forward a thousand, fifteen hundred years and you get Virgil. Uh, And Virgil decides that he wants to write about this one guy who survived the fall of Troy and happened to go wandering off and found Rome. Um, And while it may be perhaps an oversimplification to say that all literature is ultimately fan fiction, all literature is ultimately transformative. And so fan fiction is, it falls within that larger, uh, that larger category of transformative
0: fiction. Interesting. I love the idea that the Iliad is the first celebrity fiction, fan fiction. Oh, and slash One fic, them, depending yes. on some of his adventures.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it, Achilles and Patroclus the 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 OG slashers OG slash couple
0: and in talking about Shakespeare there's definitely a feeling that like in his early plays if we think of the his second or third through fourth and seventh plays being his mm-hmm. Henry VI plays yeah you know those are that seems like fan fiction to me not only for English history and mm-hmm. and about Henry VI but for his own work you know he writes he writes part two and then he goes hang on, I can write I can continue this story, and in some way I wonder uh, is it like one of those great what ifs? I'm a I'm I'm a huge fan of fan fiction just generally, not even Shakespearean. I love all the Sherlock Holmes pastiches, um, yeah. Nicholas Myers particularly Seven Percent Solution West End Horror, but uh, uh, uh but the but does Shakespeare think about how cool would it be if Henry the Sixth's troops met Joan of Arc? What would that be like? Does that, is that ring true to you? (laughs) Absolutely. No, I, I mean, so the, the prevailing
1: theory, or at least uh, relatively recently, the prevailing theory became that Shakespeare, that the Henry VI plays were a collaboration of some kind. Shakespeare and some combination of Marlowe, Drayton, um, Uh, whoever else was around, like there were a bunch of different people around.
0: Yeah. Um, George Wilkins, Wilkins, Middleton, or those guys later? No,
1: Middleton's a little bit later. So I think this is mostly, you're looking at Thomas Kidd, Christopher Marlowe, Michael Drayton, that crowd. Um, They were all hanging out in the same, they they were all in the same uh, sort of physical vicinity in the early 1590s. And I at least like to believe they were all hanging out and throwing ideas back and forth over beers. Um, So- I don't think that's wrong. I don't think it's wrong either. I mean, we have records that like a bunch of them happened to show up at the Mermaid Tavern from time to time. That was the big hangout. So, and all of them, of course, like these were the theater companies and they were all hanging out together. And one thing that we know about early modern theatrical practice is that what we see on the page may not have necessarily come from one person. Like we know for a fact that some of these lines were ad-libbed Anything that comes from a clown, you don't necessarily know that Shakespeare wrote it. It could have been Will Kemp coming up with it for all we know. So, uh, and of course you've got uh, like, you've got people like Richard Burbage, you've got people like Ned Allen, the big actors who were constantly changing lines and shifting things around and trying to make themselves fancier, trying to make their parts bigger. Like you have all of these things going on. And even a modern theatrical production is a collaborative ensemble effort. You may have one, you may have a set text, but the interpretation of the text is entirely up to you. So the line between performance studies and fan studies is actually a very, very kind of wobbly and permeable one. Um, And I certainly, at least, I mean, I'm someone, I've done amateur Shakespeare performance. I used to do tons of it in undergrad. Um, And so I kind of view fan fiction performance and academic study on very much a single spectrum. and they're all overlapping skill sets that often end up coming to bear on the same uh, on the same project.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And it and it and as you say in your bio you've been you were a creator of fan fiction before you became a scholar of it.
1: Oh, How, significantly earlier.
0: I am new to the academic side of Shakespeare. I, I, and I always say that as an academic I'm a reduced one at best. But um <laughs> Um, when did it become, when did that become a thing for you and how did you realize that fan fiction is an actual niche worthy of study? Well, fan studies has actually been around since the
1: seventies. Um, it has always been a very, very small field and it has tended to sort of sit very uneasily between literature and communications, um, and now, we're start- now you start to see it a little bit more in film studies and you start to see it in um, anyone that's doing digital humanities ends up kind of nudging in that direction just because so many fan spaces are online now. Right. Um, now, what is amazing is how many things that you see in fan studies that then end up being relevant to other uh, fields of study and even shockingly enough mainstream discourse, though nobody wants to admit this. Um, I will be honest, I had been seeing all kinds of crazy black and white arguments, confirmation bias, all of this nasty stuff that came out in the sort of period leading up to the 2016 election. I'd been seeing it for years in fan communities because people make ridiculous arguments about, well, characters.
0: Sure, And a
1: lot of times, like you can find, there are some people who get very, very invested in this, and they will say all kinds of nasty things and you get used to either ignoring it or not feeding the trolls or doing any number of other things. Yeah. But I started seeing that, those same kinds of discourses popping up in mainstream uh mainstream political conversations and i just kept thinking
0: wow this is a thing this is a thing why is this a thing it shouldn't be a thing yeah well and i guess that's in every level of discourse i mean as you were saying you know academic discourse and 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 popular discourse and Mm -hmm. and the minute you recast a marvel superhero forget about it
1: (sighs) Oh my goodness. Yeah. I still remember when the uh, the Hollow Crown Wars of the Roses came out and there was all of that uproar about the brilliant, wonderful, marvelous Sophie Concato playing Margaret, who is yeah. one of the best Margarets I have ever seen. She
0: can play all the roles as far as I She goes, like I
1: would ca- yeah, I would cast her as anyone. Like yeah. I would watch her do anything. Yeah. Um and she and there was all of this uproar about casting her because she was a black woman. And I just remember all of the, like, just the social media stuff and these nasty articles and The Sun and The Telegraph and just thinking, why? What yeah. is the big deal? Yeah,
0: you know they weren't actually speaking in verse back then, right? You know that that's not yeah, big, right? Also, you know Margaret didn't actually kill Richard Duke
1: of York, right? She wasn't even in the same country. Wait, what? <laughs> like, yeah, like, that's the thing. Like, the... And the best part, the the best response I saw to this was from a medievalist. Actually, uh, some uh, member of parliament, some super conservative member of parliament, posted an image from one of the British Library manuscripts that is supposed to be an image of Margaret. But of course, it's it's a it's a wedding portrait, so it's very idealized. Um, And the medievalist responded, well, you know that portrait um, is part of an illustration for a romance that claims Margaret of Anjou was uh, descended from a swan. So if you really want to talk about historical accuracy, let's think about that.
0: Let me introduce you to my uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus.
1: (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, exactly.
0: I'm Scott Simon of NPR News. You're listening to the Reduce Shakespeare Company podcast. Fool. Where can you RSC the RSC? We're still the remote Shakespeare company, but you can find our next round of performance dates at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for The Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and ticket information. Now back to my conversation with Dr. Kavita Mudan Finn about fan fiction. I asked Kavita if she agreed with the notion that fan fiction, in addition to being fun explorations of given texts and characters, could also be a legitimate mode of criticism of the works they're also playing and having fun with.
1: Oh, absolutely! No, I've done. Uh, I the chapter that I'm writing for the uh, the anti fandom book actually is about. Um, what I call fanish reading of Shakespeare. And it is, and one of the things that fanish reading of Shakespeare does is because we have so few actual concrete facts about Shakespeare, like one of the things we have to acknowledge is half this stuff, we're making it up anyway. We don't know, like we know we have baptismal records, we have death records, we have a couple of stray references and other records, and we have the plays themselves. That's what we have. And so we construct this idea of Shakespeare and, uh, depending on who's constructing the idea, we get something very different. If you look at Shakespeare immediately after his death, he was just another playwright. He was, he was right up there with, with Ben Johnson and Middleton and, um, uh, and Beaumont and Fletcher and all of those people. He wasn't, they, I mean, Ben Johnson wrote that wonderful, uh, the wonderful poem at the, at the start of the first folio, but Nonetheless, like you don't get the impression that Shakespeare was sort of being exalted above all the other playwrights at the time. Right. That doesn't really start happening until the very tail end of the set, like the, like the 18th century, I think, is where that really starts to happen. Because it's after um, the theaters come back, after the restoration of, uh, of the Stuarts. Um, but even then, like he's popular, he's popular drama. And it's yeah. not until like the David Garrick and the Edmund Malone and all of those 18th century critics that suddenly you get this idea that Shakespeare is a genius and somehow entirely separate from the rest of the theatrical community.
0: Right. We talked about Mm -hmm. Shakespeare to the extent of others. And yeah. and 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 I'm as guilty of this as anybody. You know, we, we, we all we, are. We need to know. We need to discuss a, a, all the other guys. Um, the amount of what we don't know about William Shakespeare's life and times would fill several internets. But you know, this is the a, a, a way of exploring exploring the canon, but also his life in a way that feels slightly more responsible because we're writing in the form of fiction. As opposed to scholars like, say, Stephen Greenblatt saying, well, Shakespeare (laughs) must have done this. And he assuredly was at Hamnet's funeral, for instance. You know, it feels more responsible. I I have arguments with Greenblatt. (laughs) Yes, I've heard some of them from from you and from others. uh, It feels more responsible to have creators of fiction exploring these possibilities and ideas rather than academics.
1: Yeah, I I I mean it's it's interesting cuz like on the one hand the there are a lot of academics out there who do acknowledge like we we don't know these things and what we're doing is working with the parameters that we have and I think that a lot I think that most uh Shakespeare academics do acknowledge that. Yeah. Uh but yes, there are there are some who like to sort of uh hold forth on certain topics and claim that that, that what they say is definitely true. Um, yeah, I, I can't forgive Greenblatt for the swerve. I just can't. Mm. <laughs> I just can't. Mm, boy, As a that... medievalist, I, am un- I
0: can't get over that book. I will never be over it. <laughs> that might be a, a wonderful topic for a future conversation. That's <laughs> yes, why
1: I hate the swerve.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have any questions for me about fan fiction?
1: Well, um, one of the questions that I have had for a long time, because I first watched a performance of the Reduced Shakespeare Company back in 1998. Um, It was my first trip to London. It was my first time seeing the Royal Shakespeare Company and the Reduced Shakespeare Company. So it was very exciting. Perfect. Um, And I would like to know kind of um, a little bit more about Um, When you were first creating, when you were first putting it together, were you thinking of it as a kind of fan fiction or had you not really kind of encountered the term at the
0: time? I well, two things. Um I hadn't encountered encountered the term um and I wasn't one of the creators of the reduced Shakespeare mm-hmm. company. That was Daniel Singer and Dang. Adam mm-hmm. Long and, and Jess Winfield. Um but uh when I when I joined the company in '92, so 20, <laughs> 29 years ago, <coughs> excuse me, um uh I was aware I had seen them perform seen the amazing complete works uh mm-hmm. and 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 recognized it as as for what it was a an irreverent celebration of the source material for all the mm-hmm. jokes that we make about how terrible Shakespeare is or how boring <laughs> he is or whatever it's 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 inter- it, it is a form of fandom and i'm I'm curious about the term anti-fandom uh it, whereas, i mean i I love the idea that it's antifa it's a different form of antifa mm-hmm. but oh. <laughs> It, it it also strikes me that the anti-fandom is not the opposite of fandom. Fan, the opposite of fandom is indifference. And That's right. and anti-fandom is not that. But as I was writing this paper for Saw uh, earlier this year, I realized that the whole reduced Shakespeare company itself is a sort of a, a a Russian nesting doll of influences from not only Shakespeare's canon, but from how he is portrayed in... Um, in other media so i mean from down to our name the reduced shakespeare company being a play on royal royal shakespeare company the complete works was absolutely inspired by um tom stoppard's dogs hamlet um uh uh uh, the the, our our latest our latest book you know the latest play is william shakespeare's long lost first play abridged which is which is um a hundred percent an imagination of what would it be like to be a 17 year old genius? Let's go with the idea that he's a full on <laughs> genius, but he has no craft. He has zero craft. So he puts every single famous character and famous speech and storyline into one single unproducible 100 hour long epic. What would that be like? Oh
1: my God.
0: Wow. So. <laughs> that, uh, you know, our, our, our love of Shakespeare drives sort of everything that we, uh, that we do. And even when people say, well, how can you, like we've, uh, our other shows are all the great books abridged and the complete history of America abridged," And we get in a lot of trouble recently for the Bible, the complete word of God, abridged. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it, it all comes from a place of love and celebration because we, we wouldn't spend years on these things without loving the source material. So in a way, it, it's absolutely our way of doing everything, having fun with him, performing him, criticizing him, criticizing the way he is presented, not only in theater, by theater companies and by board high school teachers who wish they were teaching something else. You know, it's it's an examination of sort of all those things, but in the form of a, you know, in the form of a hopefully funny comedy. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. You can watch my hour-long conversation with Dr. Kavita Mudan-Finn over on my Shakespeareance YouTube channel. Kavita takes questions from my Patreon supporters and, among other things, reveals just exactly what the finest film version of the King Arthur legend is. Send us your fan service via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at ReducedShakespeare.com, Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter, at Reduced. Dr. Kavita Mudon finns on Twitter, too, at KVMFin. I am, too, at Austin Titchener. I'm on Instagram, at the.shakesperience, which is also the name of my new website. The Shakespeareance is where you can find information on how you can work with me on monologues, presentations, or writing projects. Check out theshakesperience.com and my Patreon page, patreon.com slash austintitchener. Thanks, as always, to fan servicer Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Terry Lynn. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Scott Simon from National Public Radio. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, get vaccinated, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 774, 2320 seconds of the Reduced Shakespeare Company.
1: I think that's really the big thing that uh, that I, if I try to get people to take anything away from fan studies or my discussions of fandom, it's that when you are critiquing something, More often than not, the critique is rooted in love. Um, I critique Shakespeare all the time. I have huge problems with a lot of the things in Shakespeare's plays. But that does not mean that I don't love Shakespeare. Right. I would not have devoted years of my life studying him if I didn't.